to me, coaching is about working with the experience that the individual already has. It's about helping them make the most of that experience. It's about helping them derive learning from the things that they have happened to them um, and make some sensible choices about what, what they can do next. So from an HR point of view, that's where I think that the emphasis ought to lie. It's not really about adding things to the individual. It's more about helping them make best use of, of what they've already experienced. Welcome to the HR L&D podcast with your host, Nick Day. Tune in to discover what it takes to truly develop within human resources as we delve deep into growth, engagement and leadership strategies that will help you unlock the hidden potential within your business. By listening to this podcast, we hope to empower you and your workforce towards achieving significant HR organizational success. I'm really excited to introduce Matt Summers to the HR L&D podcast. Now, Matt is a leading voice on training and coaching in the UK. He's an author of two publications, Coaching at Work, published in 2006, and Coaching in a Week in 2016. Now, more importantly for the HR L&D listeners out there, he holds an MSc in HR development, and he's also a fellow of the CIPD, and he runs his own business called Coaching Skills Training Limited, which is a specialist training consultancy focused on the idea of the manager as coach. Now, what's really exciting about this episode is Matt gets right into the granular level of detail in relation to what coaching means, how you can utilize coaching to really engage your employees. And more importantly, we discover just how Matt views coaching as being an absolute pinnacle part of what makes a great leader. So whether you work in HR, whether you work in leadership and development, this is a podcast I think you're all really going to enjoy. He's very eloquent, he's very articulate, and I look forward to, to sharing his knowledge with you now. Enjoy. So hello and welcome to the HR L&D podcast. I am, of course, joined today by Matt Summers, who runs Coaching Skills Training Limited, a specialist training consultancy focused on the idea of the manager as a coach. Welcome, Matt. Hello, Nick. Thanks for having me on. Really good to have you on board. We're going to dive straight in. Five quick questions. Understanding where we are to know where we are going. Obviously, you are a very experienced coach, as I've already mentioned in my introduction. But what I'd love to do is just, if you can, just give the um, the listeners we've got out there a little bit of an insight into your background, Matt, from your perspective that, that's led you, your journey that's led you to where you are today on, on, on the uh, HRND podcast hot seat. Yes, happy to. So if we go back in time about 25 years ago, gosh, that's a long, long time. Um, I was working for one of the big UK banks, and that particular bank was quite uh, pioneering at the time and had the idea that it would be great to uh, train up the managers in coaching skills. And I was working in the uh, training department, the L&D function at that point, and, and put my hand up in the air to say, yeah, I'd, I'd love to get involved in that program. So I got exposed to coaching in an organizational setting back then. Uh, Nick, this would have been about 1994, I guess. and um, I would have to say it, it was a revelation. Uh, I, I remember sitting there listening to this stuff and having coaching properly explained to me. And I guess my first thought was, I wish I'd been managed like this. If I'd been managed in a coaching style uh, in my career at that point, um, life would have been a lot happier, I think, for both me and my managers. And I'd have probably done a lot better, you know, and that that kind of started the interest in in coaching as a uh, as a set of concepts in an organizational setting. So then later on, um, by now I'm running my own uh, training and development consultancy. I decided quite soon into that venture that I ought to specialize in coaching because back then this was still a fairly new kind of concept in business. So it was a, it was a good niche to occupy. Fantastic. Fantastic. Now, of course, for the listeners out there, I should mention you do hold an MSc in human resources development and you're a fellow of the CIPD. Now, the reason I mention that is just to give it some context, really, because when we hear the, the word coach and we try to define it, it can mean many things to many people. We can get a huge variety of responses. So from the context of an HR, well, qualified HR professional as you are, Matt, how would you define the word coach? The word coach or the word coaching? I'm sorry to be semantic, but, uh, you know. No, no, be semantic. How about we define them both? For sure, that'd be great. Well, I guess there is, and we might get into this uh, down, down the pipe, a difference between an internal coach and an external coach um, in terms of what, what they do and, and how they do it. And then there's, of course, what we mean by coaching. 
um, and how that might be different to some of the other things that, that we do. And we talk about the same sorts of conversations, mentoring, training, uh, and so on. So in my view, uh, there are some subtle but important differences with, with coaching and some of those other things. We can certainly get into that. I can talk about that some more if it's appropriate to do so at this point. Sure, yeah. So I, I think one of the, the really useful ways to think about this or say to people is, is look at which way the wisdom flows. So to me, if I'm training somebody one-to-one perhaps or doing some mentoring, um, then I'm probably the wiser person and the wisdom is going to flow from me and my experience and I'm going to try and do my best to get that into the head of the other person in a way that resonates with them and that they can understand. Coaching, in my experience, is, is very different. To me, coaching is about working with the experience that the individual already has. It's about helping them make the most of that experience. It's about helping them derive learning from the things that they ha- have happened to them um, and make some sensible choices about what, what they can do next. So from an HR point of view, that's where I think that the emphasis ought to lie. It's not really about adding things to the individual. It's more about helping them make best use of of what they've already experienced. So this takes us to the notion of perhaps complementing other learning and development that we might be doing through formal courses, perhaps, with some coaching before and after that. That can be hugely powerful. You know, coaching before somebody attends um, some training can really help them become focused on what it is that they want to get from that uh, training event. And if they're focused on what they want to get from it in advance of it, then they're more likely to spot those sort of opportunities or those learning points when they arise. And then similarly, if we do some coaching when people get back, well, that's hugely, hugely helpful in making sure that that training event has been a, a rich experience. And we, we really increase, in my, in my view, the chances then of that training kind of being sustainable down the track, which is, I know, something that HR people are always wrestling with. Sure, that makes sense. So can, can any HR leader, L&D professional, uh, predominantly, obviously, of course, are responsible for this kind of area, but can, can any HR manager be a coach? Well, I'm reminded of the line, I think it was from the, the movie Jurassic Park, where uh, something along the lines of just, just because you can doesn't mean that you should. Um, but <laughs> let, let, let me sort of unpack that a, a little bit. I mean, I think that, yes, uh, I think that the, uh, the, the, the skills and attributes of coaching are available to anyone who's who's mindful to do it some are going to be better than others it's been my experience that there are life's natural coaches who were probably doing coaching long before it it had that label and can certainly pick up a few hints and tips and and away they go um other people it's maybe not their their natural style or they've become very very entrenched in what we tend to think of as a kind of command and control type approach for, for them, it can be more difficult. But in my experience, yeah, I think anyone who's willing enough to try can, can probably make a decent fist of it. Um, I tend to go further personally, Nick, in the argument, to be quite honest. It's my view that anyone who is a manager of people is a coach, whether they like it or not. It seems to me that almost from the, the point that you get that requirement to get results through others, well, then I think you already are a coach. And it, it makes a huge amount of sense to me to try and do that as as, as well as we can because I think I, I don't think it's ever neutral. You know, I think if we're not developing people, then we're probably holding them back. So with that with that in mind, then would you say that when you're training, or if someone wants to go on a leadership training course, leadership being quite a, a you know a, a word that needs unpacking in itself in terms of what that means, but in order to be a good leader often you need to be a good coach and they're one and the same or if you're a poor coach it becomes therefore very difficult to be a good leader how would you how would you pick the two things from leadership to, and coaching yeah well i mean i guess the, the 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 situation the context is is hugely important in that um a, a glib example might be that in the case of um an emergency situation or perhaps in the armed forces or something like that where where people are um, trying to perform in extreme circumstances, then arguably uh, a coaching approach with its emphasis on you know trying to understand the experience of the other person and generate their views could could, could be wholly inappropriate. And, and in those more extreme situations, you would need some uh, stronger, more assertive style of leadership. I, I suppose something that's going to be done. But the average workplace 
most of the time, it isn't like that. And, and behaving as if everything is an emergency is is kind of unhelpful. So I think for the most part, yeah, in terms of running an organization, running a team within a business, then to me, yeah, coaching and, and leadership, they, they go hand in hand. One is one sort of feeds the other, I think. So in, in your mind, Matt, with your experience, what, what qualities should HR professionals be looking for in internal coaches? Yeah, it's it's an interesting one because I guess qualities covers a multitude as well. We we might think of skills or qualities, attributes or qualities. Funnily enough, when when I'm doing some coach training, we often get people to to kind of list them down or flip chart them out at the front. And without without exception, always the first one is the capacity for effective listening. I mean, that is just the the number one quality, and, and I think that that can be. Um, it developed to a, de- to a degree, but again, some people are just naturally very, very good at that. Others less so. The ones that are naturally good at it, I think, have a huge advantage. They're, they're kind of halfway down the track in being an effective coach because that's such, such an important uh, quality to have and a thing to be able to do. And most people, I think, listening to this will recognize the difference between hearing and listening and the type of listening that's that's quite superficial, where we're maybe just trying to find a chink in the argument so we can uh, intervene quickly with our next contribution, you know, and that kind of rehearsal that goes on in our mind. But a- a- active listening or a more empathetic type of listening in coaching requires us to kind of quiet in our own mind and really, really tune into the other person. So I think people who have that, that, that quality are uh, at an advantage and make a huge difference to the coaching approach. And then after that, I'd say the next two um, most important probably is is empathy. Uh, this idea of walking a mile in another person's shoes, the ability to put yourself in the, I'll use the word coachee, it's not a great word, but you, you know what I mean, the person being coached, to be able to put yourself in their situation, even if you haven't had quite the experience that they're describing. And then the third one would be credibility, but important for me to emphasize in that, I think a really uh, vital part of understanding the point of credibility is to be credible as a coach. It doesn't mean you have to have expertise. It doesn't mean you have to be the one with all the answers. It doesn't mean that you have to have done all, all the jobs or routines or tasks of the people that you coach. But yeah, you have to be credible enough to to get people to open up and, and, and talk to you or the coaching isn't going to work or it'll just be a tick box exercise with, with the coachee just saying what you want to hear. So I think listening, empathy, credibility are the, the, the three most important ones. So if I, if I presented to you, Matt, uh, an individual, you know, experienced leader, uh, for example, um, who has is demonstrating good skills and active listening, um, good empathy, has credibility through that experience, where would you take them on the next stage of their coaching journey? What would be the sort of crucial areas of training for, an, for a manager that, or leader that sort of possesses some of those qualities already? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I have um, fairly emphatic answers to that, but it, it comes with a, with a health warning as well. So the next okay. logical, <laughs> logical step after what you described, Nick, is we need to, to help the individual understand the questioning and approach. So I've banged on about listening and a lot of trainers of coaches do, but we've got to have something for us to listen to. So to to get a good conversation going requires us as coach to have good questioning skills. But um, again, I think this is often uh, undercooked uh, in a lot of um, coach training development or, or training managers as coaches. They get a short session and they're handed some example questions, usually organized around the, the growth sequence you know, the goal, reality, or, or options and will or, or way forward, um, very popular uh, coaching idea. Um, but we need to understand the, the power of those questions. We need to understand that asking coaching questions is not really designed to elicit information for the coach. Um, coaching is not diagnosing in a way that a doctor, you know, w- w- would ask questions. What coaching is designed to do instead I think is to be very provocative um, and cause the the person thinking about the question to to think to a higher degree of quality than than would be typical, a higher degree of quality than they probably get any other chance to do in a in a very very busy working day. Because, as I said at the top, it's about having the individual kind of go into their own experience and uh, and draw some learning points from that. So the, the the questions need to provoke that sort of thinking. So. 
Um, it's about developing the capacity to ask questions and developing the capacity to, to run a coaching conversation with a, a beginning, a middle and an end. But it, it's recognizing what those questions are designed to achieve. And that isn't finding out information so that the coach can say, ah, yes, I get where you're going with this. I can diagnose the problem. Here's what you need to do. And we sort of lapse back into advising mode. No, I see that a lot. And actually, it's also a good example of how leadership shouldn't always be binary about someone sort of saying, do this, do that, and instructing. Actually, it's about employees finding their own answers to solution, you know, to, to their own problems, but, but working them through with a coach, I guess, to, to come to, to give them the confidence to come up with some of those answers and solutions and then implementing them. Just going to sort of add to that. And again, it's a bit of an old cliche, but it's it's this idea of, um, you know, if we're if we're a parent and our child presents in front of us with a, a, a sh- their shoelaces undone, you know, well, in that moment, we can bend down and tie it up for them. And that's quick and easy to do. Or we can invest a little bit of time in helping them learn how to tie their shoes for themselves. That's going to take longer. But then there it is done. Hopefully you won't ever have to do that again. So again, part of the coaching approach with the asking the questions and the listening and all of that, you know, the output from those things is to have somebody who's perhaps better able then to do without us, you know, to to work independently of us freeing up more management time and more time for uh, more strategic leadership work, et cetera, et cetera. Sure, sure. That makes perfect sense. It was a great and a great example. So to bring it back into the context of an L&D professional potentially listening to this, we know that often, you know, they're going to be the, the individuals required to encourage employees of a, of a business to take up more coaching, to take up more training, to upskill departments, whatever it might be. We also know that against, you know, working against them, whether you work in HR or any other department, is the matter of time. And often time is a, one of the biggest obstructions to individuals wanting to take up training because they don't have the time to do it or they don't feel that they need it how from your experience would you recommend an hr or an lnd department went about building a coaching culture or encouraging more people to take up coaching great question um i mean i have to say i think there's inevitably going to be some training as part of that um but that doesn't have to be lengthy classroom sessions or qualification based uh uh, approaches necessarily. There's a huge amount these days that uh, can be acquired online, of course, although I personally take the view that it's very difficult to replicate online the kind of the skills practice that you, that you would need to do inevitably to, to kind of get good at, uh, at coaching. Um, but then I think there are other things that we need to do around that uh, to make sure that any time that's invested in upfront training is then maximized. Uh, you know, so that we get that that kind of value. So, for example, I think um, one of the things that HR can do quite readily is um, break the notion that coaching is remedial. I think in organizations, this is a bit of an easy rabbit hole to chase down that it somebody gets coaching when somehow something is going wrong, you know, so there's some underperformance or there's there's been an incident that needs repairing um, in inverted commas. I think that's a bit of a mistake because one, um, I think that uh, kind of undervalues all sorts of other things that coaching can be very useful for, not just remedial stuff. Um, And the other thing is it it tends to have people feeling a little bit exposed then if if they're getting coached, their reaction might be, well, why am I getting coached? What, what, What is it that I've done wrong? So um, if that's how it's been sort of set up or positioned, then we can understand why some people might be reluctant to, to get involved. So this is my roundabout way of saying one of the great things that HR can do, I think, is encourage the already high performers to very visibly take up coaching. Because in my experience, that sends a huge message out there that this is a really, really good thing. You know, if people see some of the the people that are widely known as acknowledged as, as good people in the business or in the organization, yet they too are um, taking up the coaching that's being offered, whether that's internal or external, that, that sends a hugely powerful message. And I suppose this kind of resonates with the sporting world. Often we talk about that in coaching conversations where even the very best performer wouldn't dream of trying to operate free from a coach, but it, it, it's hardly as if their skills and abilities are, are in decline. And it, 
there's a remedial aspect needed there. Some of the very, very top performers still you know, regular ongoing coaching. And the coaching, of course, is not about at that stage giving these people new skills or new abilities, but it's, it's more pure coaching. It's absolutely about helping them make the best of what they've already got. Sure. No, great answer. And I guess you know, the saying that comes to mind for me when you're talking through that is the, the old adage that prevention is better than cure. That if you're able to, you know, be proactive to encourage a philosophy or a culture of, of coaching before there's a problem, hopefully the problems never arise, number one, because you've got the coaching in place to prevent it, would be that you're not, you're not treating it as a reactionary process to bring coaching, as you say, because of underperformance or something different. Um, so I can totally understand that. Well, I agree. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, again, that we, the too often we, we coach because something went wrong. Now, um, coaching is a great way of identifying what went wrong, um, trying to understand where the warning signals might have been that something was about to go wrong, and then perhaps making some changes in systems or processes or whatever's needed to try and make sure the same thing doesn't happen again down the track. But yeah, had we had a coaching conversation in advance of the crisis, well, then maybe it would never have happened in, in the first place. So um, yeah, coaching in advance of something happening is just as, if not more important than coaching after something has happened. Mm. I've got a coach, albeit not in a, a recruitment context, but I'm going to take it slightly left field here, but I've got a coach for, for, uh, for running and for, I have a running coach that helps me repeat performance and something I always struggled with was things like injuries and I wasn't quite getting to the level I wanted, I felt I could get to and one of the first things they implemented and it won't be a surprise to those out there that enjoy sports of any kind of level really but that is I didn't do enough stretching warm-ups mobility flexibility work because I felt like if I wasn't really under some kind of stress and I wasn't hammering the treadmill or the or the or the, or the road that I wasn't really making progress but actually in, in increasing the mobility work, my injury rate has gone. I'm not injured now. It's gone a lot better. And actually, it has, it has knock-on effects on performance as well. But because you're not always breaking your sweat doing it, you don't always necessarily see the benefits immediately. And that's when you trust your coach that so they know what they're doing and they're giving you something because that's where their expertise lies. It's going to help you in the longer term. And it's only really now I'm starting to see that myself, albeit it's not a professional example. Um, it's a good example of prevention rather than cure sort of later on. Well, I, I think you see... You know, the, I think you see the organizational equivalent of, of not stretching and, and attending to those sorts of things in organizational life. I mean, how often do we go finish off one project and leap straight into the next one without taking any time really for the, 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 the download, you know, that time to reflect on what happened, what went well, what went less well, given our time again, what, what we would do differently. Certainly in my organizational experience, there's there's rarely the time devoted to being able to do that. So we launch straight into the next project um, without learning from that prior experience and lo and behold, go on to make the same mistakes again. To me, that, that seems to resonate very clearly with the, the idea you describe about never stretching properly, warms up, warm-ups, warm-downs and so on that a runner would do. Sure, sure. No, but perfect. Well, listen, we're going to find out a little bit more about some of the books that you've written in, in part two, and we're going to touch on some subjects, including employee engagement, which is a really hot topic right now. So uh, before we get there, though, uh, Matt, I'd just like to find out a little bit more about you. Time to find out more about you. Number one, who are the sort of the, the, the two people who have been the most influential to you in your career to date? Oh, wow. Um, OK, so I've been really, really fortunate in, in, in my career. Um, to learn from the knee of the of the two masters. So um, many people tuning into this, if they're in the UK, uh, will know of the late Sir John Whitmore, who sadly died last year, um, seen widely as a as a pioneer of coaching um, in the UK. So the story I was telling earlier on about my initial exposure to coaching and my first coach training, I was lucky enough that that was delivered by Sir John uh, back then. And, and he, he and I kept in touch um, in the years that followed. He was hugely helpful to me when I set up my business and, and wanted to specialize in, in coaching and lent his support to, to the books that I wrote. And I found him to be the absolute epitome of, 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 of good coaching. You know, it's, uh, it's unsettling sometimes when you, you meet your heroes in this life and they perhaps turn out to be less sincere than you'd hoped. But my goodness me, anything but the case with, with John. He was the living embodiment of, of coaching. And I, I was very, very fortunate, I think, to spend some time with him and, uh, and to be coached by him. 
amazing guy. But he himself would acknowledge being highly influenced by um, Tim Galway, who uh, people like me would, would consider to be the, the very godfather of all coaching. And he's the guy behind the Inner Game series of books. There was the Inner Game of Tennis in 1974, which many people say kind of incepted the world of, of sports coaching and sports psychology as we know it now. And one of the things that Sir John and his peer group at the time um, leaned into when they were getting business coaching going in the UK was Tim Galway and his ideas. So again, um, I've met and worked with Tim uh, as recently as, as this summer. And it's just an extraordinary experience to to, to, to be uh, in the company of, of these kinds of people that just have such an insight into, into the human mind, into, into human behavior, and who can articulate that understanding, I think, in some very easy-to-understand concepts that the likes of me can understand and then take forward. That, I think, is the great gift. So, so those two guys who anybody with even a passing interest uh, in coaching will know um, have have been instrumental in the uh, the approach that I take, and um, yeah, like I say, very very fortunate to have had that experience. Brilliant, and I'll make sure there are some links to those individuals in the episode notes as well, if people want to find out more about either Sir John Whitmore or Norway. So I'll make sure that's available. So, are there any resources out there, Matt, that have really helped you on your journey? Well, I would have to point, I suppose, to uh, the literature of, of both those guys in in my uh, previous answers. So, uh, Sir John's uh, seminal really work on, on coaching coaching for performance which i think is now in its fifth or, or sixth edition has been translated in just about every language on the planet uh, i think any aspiring coach internal external um or ought, ought to get that as the, the the key work um and and then go into uh, any of of uh, galway's inner game series so i'd recommend either the the inner game of tennis i mean people say to me matt what's the the best business book, book you've ever written and I'll often say the inner game of tennis which kind of gets some, some strange looks and I'll say but you know tennis is is kind of irrelevant that just happens to be the context that Tim Galway learned his stuff in but honestly if you read that book there are so many life lessons and therefore so many business lessons uh, from that um, so so those two I mean I've got very well thumbed copies of of both of those books uh, on, on my shelf and I probably read each of them about once a year and it would be one of those, Nick, where every time I read them again, I get some new insight and it frustrates the hell out of me because I think, well, why didn't I get this last time? You know, I, know I could have been using the idea. Um, so for me, it, 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 it was books. Um, these days, all sorts of, of, of online resources, any of the coaching bodies, um, the ICF internationally, the Association for Coaching here in the UK, uh, all of their stuff, I think absolutely fantastic. The, the webinars and the recordings of those webinars. Um, I guess the great challenge really is, is sort of knowing what to pick and choose because there's so much out there. It can be uh, a bit overwhelming, but there's some real quality um, material online. Excellent. Fantastic. Well, again, I'll make sure that both those uh, those books are, are, are linked in the episode notes for those that are interested in, in picking up either coaching for performance or in a game of tennis. Um, I quite like the idea of the in a game of tennis because sometimes I read a lot of business books and you can get a little bit, um, what's the word I'm looking for? overwhelmed i guess with the amount of business literature you out there and, and being a, a fan of sports actually taking a, a sporting approach that i can adopt I, I think would probably suit me i'd take a look at that myself it sounds quite interesting well yeah i mean i hi, highly recommended and, and tim galway wrote uh, a, a, a book i think it's about 2000 this one uh, was released called the inner game of work because what had happened with the inner game of tennis is um a lot of the guys that he was doing tennis coaching for um, at country clubs around California, where he lived, were, you know, C-level executives in, in U.S. corporations at the time and coming back to Tim and saying, well, look, you, you've helped me with my backhand. Can you please come in and help me with my sales team or, or whatever it was? And of course, the answer is, well, yeah, because the principles are exactly the same, because the principles are to do with helping people learn from their own experience. So whether that laboratory to discover that is the tennis court or the cubicle or the office or the meeting room or the training room it, it, it doesn't matter the principles are exactly the same they easily translate excellent so we have two more questions let's have a bit of fun before we jump into uh, part two if you could be given any superpower what would it be and why 
I think invisibility. I, I guess that probably comes up quite a lot. Well, people always take two approaches. <laughs> I think people either take the fun approach, you know, shoot ice from their hands or something similar, or they go, they, they think really deep about it and want to, you know, have more empathy in the world, whatever it might be. So let, let's go with invisibility. Tell me why invisibility. We'll work out which angle you've taken. Well, because... You know, I, I would like to, uh, to, to be invisibly present um, on, on some coaching conversations, uh, particularly those, those kind of uh, students, if that's the right word of mine down the years, who assure me that they take on board my every word and implement my, my every suggestion. I'd love to see that in, in operation. You know, but you, you, you can't do that visibly because people tend to get a bit sort of uh, awkward and upset and they change their behavior. You know, so it would be lovely to see people... Um, acting free from uh free from the the observer you know it'd be a researcher's dream wouldn't it to be to be present um seeing what you've taught playing out without influence how it's being out because people are modifying uh, their, their behavior they can see in the corner oh, i totally get it being a fly on the wall as they say would be uh something i think all of us would 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 like in some way or another so now i totally understand it great answer so last question before we dive back in if you could invite three people to a dinner party they can be dead or alive who would they be and why goodness me um well i'm not i'd have sir, uh, sir john and tim again but uh, I've, I've already spoken a lot about them so uh let, let's try and uh, branch out from that um i suppose in my work i i think a lot about performance and, and high performance and what it is to be a master of a craft. So um, I'm going to say that uh, the snooker player, Ronnie O'Sullivan, to me is uh, incredible. I mean, it's, it's, it's perhaps not the widely uh, known sport across the globe uh, that it is here in the UK, but I don't think that I've ever seen a sports person who is more a master of their craft than, than Ronnie is in snooker. So I'd love to try and have a, a conversation with him and understand how he's he's reached those heights. They're really absolutely personality as well, isn't he? Let's be honest. It'd be a lot of fun at a dinner party. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, they're, they're, there's that as well. And I, I must admit, I'm kind of less interested in any tournaments once he's out. Uh, there doesn't seem to be quite the sparkle amongst some of the others with, with, with the greatest respect. But, you know, that, that man at his peak, I think, is a very vivid example of, of what it is to to truly be in flow, which often again talk about in coaching, you know, trying to get people into some kind of flow state where they can do their best work. R Ronnie at his peak is a vivid example of that. Um, similarly, um, I I'm into my music. I am a ham-fisted uh, bass guitar player. So uh, Mark King, who was and is the bass player with Level 42, uh, UK uh, funk band. Uh, w once again, just virtuoso stuff. Uh, amazing ability um to, to be master of his instrument and uh, again it would be a, a fascinating conversation to try and understand the nature nurture thing i mean how much of that is a gift to be able to be a virtuoso player of a musical instrument how much of that was teaching and uh, ten thousand or more hours of practice that supposedly we're all supposed to you know to, to try and acquire before we can get mastery over anything I, i'd love to try and understand that and was it three people at a, a dinner table? It was, yeah. yeah. It was, so there's two. Um, let me think of a third one. Wow. You. How about that? I'll take that. I'd love to be there. I'd love to see one of Sullivan, and I'd be interested in Mark King as well, a musician myself. So uh, I'd happily attend. So Brilliant. I'll... Well, I, I'd be so starstruck that I wouldn't be able to think of a, a central question to ask. Um, you, you could dip in for me, given your, uh, your interviewing experience. Oh, you're very kind. You're very kind. I'll definitely be there. Actually, before I jump back in, you, you raised um, a little point there about the 10,000 hours of practice. Now, I read Bounce, which is what that, if I'm, if I'm correct, is what that's based on. The author that talked about the, uh, becoming a, a world championship level table tennis player. And he sort of wrote a book called Bounce, which was all about having 10,000 hours of meaningful practice to become expert. I think the key thing in there was that meaningful practice piece but what's your view as a professional coach because i've heard lots of different views on this it's, it seems to be quite a subjective book and there are people out there that have tried to debunk the myth and, and you know call it a myth and it doesn't quite work and others that swear by it but as a professional coach with your experience particularly someone who you know as you say worked closely with the likes of sir john whitmore and tim galway who is obviously tim in particular who's written about sport in itself what's your take on that ten thousand hours of practice and um from your perspective is it something you you believe in? 
Um, yeah, so I, I'm familiar with Bounce, which I think was Matthew Said, wasn't it? The um, former uh, Olympic level, I think, uh, table tennis player. I know Malcolm Gladwell's written about the 10,000 hours as well. I, I'm not sure in which of his books and which came first, his or, or Matthew Said's piece. Um, I, I'm nervous about putting numbers to things. That, you know, 10,000, I guess, you know, sounds really good. It's a bit like the... 10,000 steps or whatever that we're all supposed to take on our Fitbit. I mean, it's just a nice, convenient round number. But there's something in that. You know, there's something about needing to um, have tried something or performed a requirement a number of times to have generated learning experiences from it. So even though I wouldn't put a number to it, I do think there's, there's merit in that idea. What I've certainly found to be the case through coaching is um, coaching can help practice become more purposeful. So I think one of the things that happens when we practice anything, whether that's a motor skill like a sport or a, a musical instrument, or whether it's a more uh, conceptual thing like you know understanding a, a sales conversation, I think when we try and practice, it can be easy to just lapse into old habits, to practice the things that we're already good at because we feel very comfortable in that arena, um, to waste a lot of time because we're not really focusing on the areas of practice that are areas that we need to change. So it, it, it's easy without uh, support for practice to become quite meaningless, I suppose, you know, and it, it to be a bit of a waste of time and energy. So practice that happens as a result of a coaching conversation, which is really drilled down into what's going well, what's going less well, what do you need to practice? How will you know when things are improving? How will you evaluate your success? What will you do when you've mastered that bit? Uh, is it appropriate to concentrate on building strengths? Is it appropriate in your practice to address weaknesses for now? Those kind of conversations, I think, can really put a much sharper focus on practice and therefore accelerate one's improvement. Um, that might mean you only need 8,000 hours in suppose of 10, I guess, you know, to, to bring it back to that. So, um, I think there is absolutely no substitute for practice, but it's got to be purposeful practice. Yeah, no, I love that. And actually, without knowing it, because I haven't shown you these questions that I've prepared, I took this uh, this podcast recording, and it, just the answer you've given leads us perfectly into part two. So we'll jump to a quick advert break, and I'm going to continue with the next question. Have you ever asked yourself, how can any recruiter understand my HR recruitment challenges? Please don't give up on your hiring challenges just yet. Here at JGA HR Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting and retaining top human resources talent. We also understand just how costly a poor hire can be. JGA HR Recruitment would like to partner with you to help you overcome your hiring challenges. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more shaping the future of human resources together final questions the question i was referring to is you've talked about the purposeful practice how do you go about leaving a footprint for the coaching approach work you do after you finish working with a client so you've given the coaching and you mentioned being that fly on the wall but making sure that it's all the invisible in, in your example making sure the coaching does take place but, but what kind of you know, how do you go about leaving that kind of footprint yeah all right. So um, great, great, great question. And I think the start of the answer is to recognize that what coaching does, and this might help distinguish coaching from training as well, because training is more, I think, behavioral. You know, it's about getting people to adopt a new way of doing something. Coaching is about changing people's thinking. Uh, it's been my experience that before you can change what people do, you have to change how they think. You have to change the mindset. You have to change their uh, ability to find their, their focus amongst the white noise. Otherwise, it, it tails off. And anyone in HR and L&D has seen this countless times that you know the, the dust is thrown up in a training session. Everything's great for a few weeks. And then that old forgetting curve kicks in and, and the effect uh, diminishes because probably no permanent change uh, took place. So to, to give you an example of that, I, I sometimes do some work with um, public speakers, uh, trainers or people who give 
keynote talks or might have to pitch and present to try and win uh, new work in their business. And one of the things that they'll often ask us some help with is uh, what we might think of as verbal tics. So um, filler words, you know, basically sort of people become aware of those things uh, peppering their conversation or ers and ums or nervous noises that they make. So traditionally, what, what we might do is, is point out to people that that's unhelpful and suggest that they try really hard not to do that. Well, um, unfortunately, trying really hard is a, is a notoriously poor way um, of changing anything. Uh, it, it's like saying to somebody who's suffering with insomnia, well, you must try harder to sleep. It's kind of counterproductive. You know, trying just, just creates tension, and that's the very last thing that you need. So what I would do with a presenter who's uh, experienced or who wants to change the amount of these filler words and phrases that they're, that they're using is I would just say to them, well, count how many times you do it. So in this next practice presentation, don't worry about trying to remove the ahas, the ahums, the you knows. Just count how often you do it. And they'll say, well, that would be really awful, won't it, if I do it a lot? And I said, well, let's not judge it as good, bad, or otherwise at the moment. Just count how often it happens. And this is where the coaching magic kicks in, because if they're aware enough to be able to count how often it happens, well, then they're aware enough to stop it happening. I hope that that makes sense. You know, this idea of raising people's awareness, bring it into consciousness, is often all we need to do to secure something, to to use that example. So aware enough to count is aware enough to stop. And there it goes, you know, it sort of disappears and change at that level then, because that's the person has come to that conclusion for themselves. Another uh, uh, coaching principle that, uh, alongside awareness, which I've just spoken about is responsibility. You know, it has to be change that the individual is in control of. So because they've arrived at that, um, that, that, that conscious awareness of what they're doing for themselves, it's not been imposed on them from the outside. They're not trying to adopt a behavior to, to meet some external standard. Then in my experience, it, it tends to be much more permanent. So those are really the, the two main aspects of, of a coaching approach is bring something to somebody's awareness before we can change anything. We need to be aware of how it is now and then ensure that they, they are and they see themselves as responsible for, for owning that change. And I think you've got two ingredients then to try and make sure that that sort of sustains despite the, the pull of bad habits and so on. I mean, it might need more than one coaching conversation, of course, uh, but it's going to be a lot more effective than just saying, well, stop this bad habit because that, that really doesn't work. Sure, sure. So, I mean, for HR and LD professionals listening to this right now, we've got sort of the word or the the sense of say employee engagement it's kind of a hot topic right now everyone's talking about employee engagement brand engagement uh, as well as also a real hot topic at the moment where particularly with businesses they're trying to improve their retention they're trying to reduce their attrition uh we see it all the time as, as hr specialist recruiters you know people are looking about and asking us questions about salaries how they can uh, attract more people to their brand how can they, they can keep them engaged to improve those retention levels so being such a hot topic within HR circles, and with this in mind, how would you recommend businesses approach gaining more loyalty, trust, and commitment from its people through your kind of coaching approaches? Yeah. Um, well, I wouldn't pretend to be an expert on the technicalities of employee engagement across the piece, uh, as you describe it. But I suppose the window that I look into is that old cliche of people join organizations and then leave managers. I think that uh, an individual's relationship with their line manager, the person that they consider to be their boss, is a huge component of their sense of engagement and, and probably one that might, if it were an inappropriate or not a particularly productive relationship, I fear it would probably trump some of those others that are more in the realm of you know, pay and reward and, and, and so on. And coaching uh, absolutely speaks to cementing effective relationships between a line manager and their team member. Because if you, if you take a moment to think about it, if, I, if you're my team member, Nick, and I take a coaching approach with you, that's probably going to see me asking a lot of questions and listening very, very carefully to your answers. That's very visible demonstration that I value and honor your input, your experience, that I see you as a, 
uh, a professional person with a, a point of view that's that's that that I'd also avail myself of of your manager. So that's that's a a powerful building block of trust, which, as you've said, is in itself a powerful building block then of of engagement. Also, if you're having I'm having a coaching conversation with you, I'm going to get through that conversation an awful lot of insight into what makes you tick at the individual level. So I'm going to get insight about what you find engaging. I'm going to get insight around what you find to be motivating. Those things are likely to be different to the next team member and the next team member and the team as a whole. They'll, they'll be unique to you. So rather than throwing a blanket over the team when it comes to engagement and, and thinking, well, all of these ideas are universally motivating. Let's, uh, I don't know, you know, we'll, we'll institute uh, a team night out every third Thursday because everybody finds that motivating. Well, everybody doesn't find that motivating, actually. For some individuals, that can be really difficult. Uh, they might have commitments outside of work that make engaging with something like that really quite problematic for them, you know. So um, through the best of intentions, we've ended up creating a problem where perhaps none existed previously. But if I take a coaching approach, I will get that insight into you uniquely. And then, and of course, there's not always something I can do about that. You know, we can't necessarily have individualized engagement programs, but it's going to take some of the guesswork out of it. And it's going to let me know to what extent the organizational level and organizational wide type of programs might appeal to you as an individual and, and where they might not and where perhaps I, I need to do something a little bit more bespoke for you if I can. So to answer the question, I, I think that by far the biggest component of engagement is the relationships that people have with others at work. Key amongst those relationships is between team member and, and their boss. And, and a, the ability of the boss to engage with the team in what I might observe as a coaching style w would be hugely impactful uh, on that for the positive. That's a great, it's a great answer. I've, I've been referencing in my mind um, as, you, as you were talking about things that we do internally, and it, it's true in recruitment. So uh, a, a mistake that I've made in the past, and you know, sometimes I have to remind myself of it, is that a great recruitment consultant um, who may be very successful doesn't always, A, make a great manager, and B, doesn't always want to be a manager either and sometimes you know i've been quick to certainly earlier in my career i was quick to make the assumption that people always want to make the next step up into management well actually if you're very successful as a consultant you don't always want that extra responsibility you're you're achieving the goals you set out for yourself which can be very individual whereas there'll be others who perhaps may not be as successful as a consultant who have proven to be extraordinarily good managers within a, within a recruitment division so it's it, i think it's a great, great example that you, you've mentioned there that I was just referencing my mind to say that without asking the questions of the teams that I've managed, I would you, you never really know what motivates them. It's very easy to say, well, everyone's motivated by by money or by title, and actually, it's rarely either of those things. Um, it's usually something that's a lot more, you know, insular and important to them at a more granular level than, than something quite so sort of, sort of wide ranging as, as title or salary. Um, but I've had I learned that the hard way by making mistakes for sure. Yeah, well, likewise. And I mean, I, I will have this conversation with, with managers and leaders quite a lot these days. And we'll talk about what it is that, that, that people find motivating. And then sometimes a manager will say to me, well, you know, be it, it pay or, or conditions or title or status or whatever, the motivator that they, they latch onto is they'll say, well, well, it motivates me. And I have to say, yeah, but you're not a particularly representative sample of the wider rocket the wider working populace you know you're 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 just new so the fact that you find um an aspect of working life motivating does not give any clue as to what your team members do and whether or not you think that they should is kind of by the by it doesn't work like that but to come back to your your point on re recruiters and managers i mean i see this a lot in the sales environment so how often is it the case that the person that gets the job as the sales manager is the currently best performing salesperson who are powering through their numbers each quarter and so on. But I, I, countless times, I think that that's, that's an error because to me, the skills and qualities that you need to be a very effective salesperson often don't read across to being an effective sales manager. In fact, sometimes they're, they're kind of poles apart. Um, and, and therefore, the, the successful salesperson when it comes to making a transition from 
getting results from themselves to getting results through others can become highly, highly frustrating because it just doesn't work anymore. And then they end up kind of intervening and getting back on the tool, so to speak, and doing some direct selling themselves, which gives them even less time to work with the team, which means the results of the others decline even more. And it's it's a really unhappy um, sort of vicious circle. But I remember once seeing an example in, uh, I think it was magazine advertising. And the and, and magazine advertising is is and was hard. That's a, that's a hard sales gig. But in this particular magazine that I had some involvement with, um, the sales manager in, in the guys that were selling advertising space had never been a salesperson himself. He'd never worked on the phones and never never sold the advertising space, which was just anathema to most people. But he was just such an effective coach. He he just had these people being the best that they could be, and that I think is hugely significant. As a coach, it's not about how good I might be as a performer in that same realm. It's about how good can I make you? And those are the best coaches. You know, they're free of ego. They're not really worried about their own results. What they're concerned with is how do I have the people that I'm coaching fulfill their own potential? Um, and it's, it just seems to be a difficult thing for a lot of people to grasp, but it's so, so important. In order to be an effective coach, you do not necessarily have, have to have been the best or even a great performer in the same field. You just need to be really good at coaching other people. You do touch upon some of these, or actually most of those elements in your book, don't you? Your first book, which is Coaching at Work, Powering Your Team with Awareness, Responsibility and Trust. And I will put a link to the book. It's on Amazon uh, in the episode notes for those interested in, in finding out more about it. But I know in that book itself, you discuss how businesses you know, try to balance the needs to do more with less. And you can do that by creating environments in which people can grow, develop and achieve their aspirations. Um, obviously, you've touched a lot of those areas there. Is there anything more that, that the businesses can do to achieve more with less? Yeah, I think it's about, um, it, it comes down to learning. So um, Tim Galway, who I referenced earlier behind the, the inner game of, of tennis, um, has a concept which he calls the PLE triangle. And, and in that triangle, those letters stand for performance, learning and enjoyment arranged on the triangle, which suggests that we need those three things in balance. So the, the idea, without getting into too much detail, is that if we can create environments, Nick, in which people can perform, i.e. do something well and derive satisfaction from that, so if they can perform and they can learn and they can enjoy their work experience in equal measure, well, then we've, we've set up the conditions really for, for high performance. But all too often in organizational life, we concentrate only on the P for performance and neglect learning and enjoyment. So oftentimes, I think one of the ways in which we can increase people's ability to do more with less is have them learning from experience. So again, because it's in my mind, if I sort of fall back into a sales example, um, a salesperson might be only making a successful sales conversion from one call out of every 10. But what are they doing with those other nine? You know, all too often they're just regarded as being failures in inverted commas, but they're not, are they? They're, they're nine other opportunities to learn about what works and, and what doesn't, in which case all 10 of those calls are useful in terms of the bigger picture, even though it might only have been one of them that's resulted in a, in a client sale. So I think if we're looking for some, uh, some quick wins in, in that regard, well, then it's beefing up the the attention that we pay to learning from experience across a day's, weeks, months task. You know, what, what are we learning? What are we, what should we do more of? What, what should we do less of? What should we stop doing entirely? Because it's a redundant process now. I think in my experience, we don't often put those things under the same lens or give it the same emphasis that we do to, to matters of business performance and our KPIs and ratios and all of those harder measures. Sure, sure. No, that makes sense. And actually, I mean, you, you talk about it in more detail in your second book, which is um, titled Coaching in a Week. And I know that in there, you've, you've broken it, that, that, that coaching principle, those coaching principles into seven chapters, and each chapter tackles a different aspect of coaching. You've broken it down by days as well. I wonder if just before we finish, um, or if people can find out more about yourself, Matt, whether you could just talk to the listeners a little bit about the aims of the book and your key coaching principles within it that, as you say, are broken down in sort of seven key principles that can really help organizations yeah so um the the idea of that book i mean that's the, it's it's part of a series so the the publishers hodder and stout and have a, an in a week 
um, series. So uh, there was project management in a week, um, time management in a week, and, and so on, successful in a appraisal in a week, all, all sorts of business titles. And uh, I, I came to that realizing that there wasn't a title uh, at the time on coaching, so decided to, to see if I could contribute to that, and they were kind enough to let me get involved. Um, and the idea is, you know, seven parts, seven days of a week, you, you learn a little bit more um, on, on each day. So a, a lot of that book is devoted to a, a questioning model um, based on uh, the, the growth sequence, although I, I, I use slightly different letters. But since you mentioned principles, I think, again, it's worth me emphasizing that principles are the things that make a difference with coaching, that without an understanding of coaching principles, then the growth sequence or my version of that, which I call the arrow model, or there are dozens and dozens of these things out there. But if they're not founded on principles, they won't work. And those principles are awareness, the idea of, of using a questioning approach to get people to think more clearly and therefore become more aware of what's happening to them. The second principle is responsibility, that it's the individual who's going to make change in the end. So they have to be responsible for the actions that they take. It has to be from a place of choice on their part. And then thirdly, trust. Because if we think about the, the two things that we spoke about earlier on in the conversation around skills that a coach would use, going to be a lot of questions, going to be a lot of listening to the response. But if there isn't a trusting relationship between the two individuals, that won't work. It's just going to be a superficial thing with the, the person being coached just telling us what it is that they think they want to hear. So in that book, Coaching in a Week, I think, you know, across the the course of two or three days or two or three chapters, I really get into the detail around that because it's so, so important to understand that before we let loose on the questions. Because without that, the questions can be quite damaging, really. You know, if we're not able to, to know what to do with an answer, then just asking a, a question in and of itself can be uh, quite risky. Sure, I think you've you, you very uh, eloquently put the, the coaching process into perspective for the listeners out there th throughout this podcast, so Matt. So thank you ever so much for that. I think, you know, coaching, as I said, right at the start and first question can mean so many different things and can be um, defined in so many different ways. But I think from a commercial um, perspective, you've, you've given a really articulate version of, of how coaching can really benefit organizations. It can benefit in so many ways. It can benefit leaders. You know, leaders individuals that the leaders are coaching it can improve employee engagement it can build trust um, it can help with the you know, critical elements of the emotional side of, of uh, you know, corporate psychology whether it's building empathy or anything else and i think you've given a fantastic account of of both the work you do and more importantly as well from, from the context of the listeners we've got here how you know good coaching can really benefit hr and lnd departments for all businesses and beyond so thank you ever so much it's been a real pleasure having you on board and if people wanted to know more about yourself matt i wanted to connect with yourself to either you know engage your services or to find out more about your coaching philosophies where would you recommend they went useful links keeping the hr lnd community connected well i have a website at um www.mattsummers.com m-a-t-t-s-o-m-e-r-s uh but these days i prefer linkedin because i think that's um uh, a much more two-way kind of uh, interaction than people just viewing a website. So I, I'm on LinkedIn at the slash Matt Summers, felt the same way, obviously. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I'd love to connect with people on there and uh, would be happy, more than happy to engage with anyone who's uh, come by me by way of this podcast. That'd be great. Excellent. Fantastic. It's obviously how we uh, we got talking as well, Matt, to, to, to start this podcast on the So uh, it was, it, it's a great way to connect. I'm a big fan of LinkedIn as well. And I'll make sure that um, the links to both your LinkedIn profile and your mattsummers.com uh, address is in the episode notes. So if people want to fast track links to Matt's profile on LinkedIn or to his website, just click onto the episode notes and you should be able to click straight through either from your mobile device or your uh, desktop device or whatever tool it is you're using to access the podcast. I'll also put some links on there as well to the two books I've mentioned. So the first, uh, just to reiterate, was Coaching at Work, Powering Your Team with Awareness, Responsibility and Trust. And the second book is Coaching in a Week, both available on Amazon. So you can either do a search on Matt Summers or do a search for either of those and you'll find it. But I'll also put the links to both those books in the episode notes as well. Of course, just to finish off, if you are an HR L&D professional listening to this podcast and you've got an HR, HRIS or L&D related vacancy and you need some specialist HR recruitment support, please do get in touch with me. I would love to help show you what a great HR recruitment experience can feel like. 
And you can reach out to me directly at nick at jgarecruitment.com or give me a call on 01727 800 377. It just leaves me to say thanks, Matt, ever so much for, for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Pleasure, Nick. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, it's been it's been all mine. I hope the listeners have very much enjoyed it. And uh, I look forward to bringing everyone the next episode of the HRND podcast real soon. Thank you so much for tuning into the HR LND podcast with your host, Nick Day of JGA HR Recruitment. If you need help with a current HR or LND vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team. All contact details can be found in the episode notes. In the meantime, to make sure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels. Till next time.